What is up, Mets fans? Welcome back to another episode of the Mets Up Podcast, another off-season episode. Going to talk about the postseason, going to talk about Billy Epler stepping down and what he did during his time here with the New York Mets, all the moves, all the acquisitions. Go over those, and then also just talk about a little baseball postseason, like I said. We've got some big games going on, some big series, and even though the Mets season's not going on, me and James still watching a lot of baseball, still want to talk to you about some players to keep an eye out for, guys to watch in series that are particularly intriguing this postseason. As always, if you guys are enjoying what you're listening to here, make sure you follow us on all our social media, at MetsDup, M-E-T-S-D-U-P, on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. If you're looking for the YouTube version of this video, go to the New York Mets YouTube channel and subscribe over there. And if you are listening to us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Odyssey, drop us a rating, drop us a review, download and subscribe. James, how we feeling? Postseason baseball starting. Feeling good. Postseason's been great so far. Um, format and all, I think, has been pretty nice to watch for everybody. Watching the Astros right now, just take it to the Twins after dropping the first game there, finding their, finding their way right back to where everyone always probably assumed they would be. But it's been good. This is that like magical time of the sports calendar where a lot of things are happening at once. We're like a couple weeks away from the sports equinox, where in the same day we're going to have a basketball, a baseball, a football, and a hockey all played yes. professionally. College football season, you guys don't like me talk about it, but it's going okay. And playoff baseball has been, again, it just has been awesome. The game, we'll talk about a lot after we talk about Billy Epler, but the Braves-Philly series already like super, super living up to the billing. And it's just, it's a funny thing for Mets fans to just be there and having to root for one of them. And I think that basically every Mets fan is in agreement that the Phillies are the one that we're rooting for. And it's, it's hilarious, yes. just like the feelings inside my head and my body and my brain. I'm talking to you about it as well, like cheering for a team that I've hated forever. Yeah, no, I mean, absolute. It's a it's a nightmare of a series. Like the nightmare is always like Braves Yankees, but even then, probably I, I actually don't really know what I would do. Still, probably the Yankees, but it's just I would hope there was a tie. But Braves Phillies right now, at least it's not the World Series. Can root for one team because they could still get knocked down in the next round. But yeah, we'll talk about that a little bit more. Let's talk about the big thing that is involving the Mets. That was Billy Epler stepping down as the general manager of the New York Mets on October 5th. Um, and he, I mean, he did a lot of really good things for Billy Epler. I know sometimes Mets fans get a little bit mad at the GM, get mad at the manager. That's what Mets fans do. I mean, you, you want to point blame at somebody. But all things considered, there were a lot of positives that Billy Epler did. And I, I feel like that trade deadline this past year is the one that st jumps out immediately because the Mets were able to take a farm system. That was fine. And turned into a really good one, moving on from a lot of veteran players and getting a ton back. Yeah, we could look back in three, five years as the trade deadline 2023 kind of transforming the Mets organization, like changing the whole franchise. And I don't think that's something that we can really sneeze at. And like you said, a lot of Mets fans weren't the biggest fans of Billy Epler. And I think just baseball fans in general, when things don't go well, like have to point the fingers at somebody. And as a Mets season, that just did not go well. Like, again, you have to talk to somebody. And then Epler also always catches a lot of flack for the trade deadline last year, but I'll say some funny things about that in a little bit. But I think the, the crazy thing about the Epler resignation was just the timing of it, because I don't think that when you hire a new president of baseball operations, it would be surprising for people in different positions to either resign or just be moved to different places or just, or leave, go somewhere else. But the fact that it was just after the press conference, I think it left a, a strange, a strange, it felt weird. It felt very weird. Yeah, I mean, if, and if you look at what was said on MLB.com through the press release and all that kind of stuff, I mean, a lot of good words from Steve Cohen and from Billy Epler himself. Billy Epler saying, I wanted David to have a clean slate, and that meant me stepping down. I hope for nothing but the best for the entire Mets organization. And Steve Cohen saying, Billy Epler led this team through a 101-win season and a postseason berth last year, and he will be missed. 
We accepted Billy's resignation today as he decided it is in everyone's best interest to fully hand over the leadership of baseball operations to David Stern. On behalf of the Mets organization, we wish him him all the best. And I mean, that's just kind of what it feels like. I don't think there was any ill will, any bad intentions behind this. It was just... There's a new guy in charge. Billy Epler is like, hey, like I've I've been here. I've made my my mark now. It's time for me to move on. It's time for us to go our separate ways and just kind of shake hands and say thanks for what we did. Yeah, and that's just kind of how even just like to zoom out a little bit more, like not just big, fancy, amazing, high-powered baseball jobs, but just jobs. Like you're going to generally want to work with people who you are connected with, who you've worked with before, you know how they work, and not like saying that that – was the reason here, but it just seems like a natural way that a lot of these front offices are built in baseball, even just any kind of professional company, any kind of Fortune 500. When we started this podcast, we, we did it because we were friends. Like, not be, we're not yeah. going to like just grab someone random on the street, but like, you want to talk about the Mets together. It's just that's that's just the way the world goes. And those words were good from Steve Cohen. And again, I do think that while a lot of Mets fans probably don't have the rosiest glow of Billy Upler's two years as the general manager here, I do think that there was a lot, a lot of good that he did more than I would say more than the average general manager would do in a two year stretch. That is kind of, it's kind of gotten swept under the rug. Yeah. I mean, like I know Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander didn't work out, but I mean, look at past regimes, past general managers, past moves have been made. Mets really didn't bring in that caliber of free agent player very often, despite being in a major market. I mean, it was just, four or five years ago now that Bryce Harper and Manny Machado were available and they weren't even slightly linked to the Mets. And the fact that the Mets were linked to two Hall of Famers, the fact that Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander both came here, I mean, that is a big, big, like, I I don't know what the right word is, but big props to Billy Epper for bringing them here. Uh, It's re-legitimized, I think, what the organization could do, especially in free agent landscape. There was another free agent that year too when uh, Machado and Harper were free agents, a pitcher who also wasn't really in play for the Mets, who's been pitching really well his last couple of weeks, yeah. but that's, I don't want to talk about that right now. But um, I just, and again, just like zooming out, like taking a very, very simplistic view of what's happened the last couple of years with this team, things that we could very much tie to Billy Upper. Kodai Sanga looks like probably the best awesome. acquisition that was made in the last two years. He's being paid like John Gray, less than, <laughs> less than Taiwan Walker. And he's going to get top, like top three NL Cy Young and rookie of the year votes. It looks like a guy who you're comfortable with. At the top of a rotation, which is amazing again for a guy who makes John Gray money, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Brandon Nimmo was incredible in the first year of his new deal, and that was kind of the one last offseason where I feel like Mets fans, you and I, were just like, if any of these aren't going to happen, like this is probably the one that won't happen. And they still found a way to get it done, and he's making less money annually than Chris Bryant and Ian Happ, which again, like compare Whoa, those for less like, than Ian Happ. Yeah, Ian Happ was mini extension gets like Whoa. a little, a little bit more than Nimmo with less defensive I mean, value. He's Ian Happ's a good offensive player, but I think that's a comparison yeah. where you're like, I'd rather have the, the, our guy than that guy. Yeah, and I mean, like when we were talking about them in offseason episodes last year, we were like, Nimmo is the guy we also have to bring back. Like in terms of re-signing, like it's very, very hard to find his value at center field, which is a premier position. Want to be strong up the middle, and him being here for a very, very long time now, next five, six, seven years, whatever it is, it's it's just great that we were able to get that done. And that Brandon Nimmo was also super excited to be a part of this team for the next few you know, years. And someone who, you know, became a leader, became someone who is much more vocal now with this big contract. Someone who just took, took it very well. And like a guy like Brandon Nimmo, who just set his career high in home runs by seven. And that was a, re- that was a, a career high he set in 2018. So a very long time yeah. ago for Brandon Nimmo to do that. Also the career high in games played as this is, this is the craziest one. 130 WRC plus four straight years and five out of six. Yeah. It's gross. Yeah, it's crazy. And then this is a guy who you're like, and now he's playing center field. He was signed to play center field. He just turned 30 years old. And that's someone who 
not just turned 30 years old. He'll be, I think he'll turn 31 by the beginning of next season, turn 30 right before the season began. But as a guy where if he has to move to a corner, like you don't even bat an eye, like his bat will stick himself in a corner. He'll be a guy who's sitting at the top of the order, hopefully for a very long time. And that was a deal. Again, it was, I think in the public sphere it was like, I don't know if the Mets can do all these. And on the other side of that, a move that was very difficult to make last year, which was not matching the mega contract given to Jacob DeGrom by Texas Rangers. I think right now you look at that, be like, I think that was probably a good time, good time to fold him instead of holding him. And that's another, that's another props to him. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it. I think if me or you were the GM, we probably would have signed Jacob DeGrom and we would have been stuck with a guy who's hurt, not going to pitch for another year. Who knows what he's going to be like when he comes back? He's had history of arm issues. Like you can respect how great Jacob DeGrom was, but that's, it's a really, really hard decision to make, especially for a team that was going out and spending a lot of money and saying, this is the one guy we're not going to spend money on. The guy who, when healthy, is without a doubt the best pitcher in baseball. Pretty, that's a tough move to make, but he, I think he hit the nail on the head with that one. And you think about Domino's falling to get back to the trade deadline of this year. Like, Justin Verlander got the money that theoretically DeGrom would have gotten. They got it for less years and probably a little more like annually. That was a trade that you were able to make because he was, in fact, healthy and he was pitching at a high level. If Jake DeGrom gets hurt and he has that money, that's not value you can now recoup in a lost season. The fact that that was, a move, again, like maybe some of that is random. Maybe some of that is just, just, just blind luck. But no matter what, that was the move that did happen. And then the domino effect coming out of there is like, oh, now we got new high-end prospects to replenish this farm system. And in that trade specifically, it was Drew Gilbert and Ryan Clifford. Yeah, and I think that's that's super important to talk about too. Like he was able to flip Max Scherzer, Justin Verlander, David Robertson, get Mark Hanna, Tommy Pham to get some stuff. But he made that trade earlier in the year too for Eduardo Escobar, just kind of in the middle of June, like out of nowhere, where he flipped him to the Angels. Eduardo Escobar, we loved him, but he wasn't a part of the future plan of this team. He was an upcoming free agent. And you got two pitching prospects. And we've been able to see what the Mets pitching lab has been able to do with a lot of these guys that they've brought into the organization. It just seemed like at least if if you were, from again, from the outside perspective, looking in, things were being done inside this organization while Billy Epler was the GM that made the organization better than it was before. Yeah, I think that is just the simplest way to put Billy Epler's tenure with the team. And, there, and in doing that, in this massive spending spree, there wasn't really any money that was tied up to someone who was going to hinder you in the long term from signing the types of stars that we now, again, as we watch the postseason, we know win teams championships like anything now is still in play and i think that was always the goal which was stay stay as lean as you possibly could put as good of a team out there as possible but then also give yourself the flexibility in future years and then we've heard david stearns echo this already where it's like we want to win now but not for the sake of sustainability like we want to know we do want to put a team on we want to compete put a good team on the field but as long as the the long-term plan is always the goal which is every single year we're, we're up there for the division. Every single year, you're winning 90, 95, 100 games. Every single year, you're putting yourself in position to get back to the tournament, get back to the tournament, and get that trophy. That is what really matters. I think that is, again, like that's kind of the good thing that's happened here. Like Two of these prospects hit that we got the trade deadline this year. It looks like right now, many of them are going to hit, but even if just two of them hit and become these kind of 50, 55 value players that they already look like they are, that it, it can't even tell you what that does for an organization, just having that kind of interchangeable depth for no cost whatsoever. On top of the fact that they've drafted really well in the two years that Billy Epler was here as well. Like the drafts were very successful. They have, I mean, what they did with the pitchers from the last two drafts, Mets went from having no pitching prospects to all of a sudden we're like, man, there's like six good arms in double A. And you guys can hear all about them on the future of Flushing podcast that Vito and John host talking about the minor leagues. But all these, all these young arms that they drafted in late rounds that all of a sudden are starting to pop up. Like I know Paul Gervais is a, is a relief arm, but I'm telling, when we saw him pitch, we we're like, Oh my, oh my goodness. This guy's got some really, really good stuff. 
they've just been able to find kind of like those nooks and crannies that these other smarter organizations were able to tap into organizations like you saw the Brewers, Astros, Dodgers, guys in later rounds, pick, uh, get guys for over slot value in later rounds, bring them here, brought back Christian Scott, or, uh, not Christian Scott, Christian Scott, Brandon Sproat, who didn't sign. They're like, we want you again. And he said, okay, I'm back. Like, I think there was a lot of really good things done. And again, the, the best way to describe it is yes, maybe the Mets didn't win a world series. They had, didn't have necessarily the postseason success, but it would be super, super nearsighted or short-sighted to take those two years, say they didn't win a World Series as a complete failure because right now the organization's in a decent spot considering where it could have been if, if they didn't make a lot of these moves. Mm-hmm. And just uh, like the seeing like the way the value propositions worked and some of the draft picks as well, like seeing that the Mets had a bit of a dearth, in, a dearth in starting pitching prospects the last few years. And what do you do? You draft like, what, 20 of them in two years? And you say, get them in there. And you draft guys with certain traits that you know you can work with, thinking about... um. Think about Blake Tidwell, how that you you see a guy there who has a lot of was great arm, good, big pitcher's body. You're like, we know that we can get all these pitches out of him now, and we're going to be able to elevate him. A guy like Tyler Stewart, who I think was an afterthought. Like like you said, going back to well, Brandon Sprout, my guy Brandon Banks, who um was Brandon Banks, Brian Banks, Brian Banks. Brandon I don't Banks. know who you're talking about. It was the seventh round pick from this year who had like the just the incredible Trackman numbers, where it's like we mm, see okay. we see a path for a guy here who. Similar to um, Christian Scott, who was maybe didn't have the role that he we people would have wanted him and seen out of college, but we know he still has a starter's repertoire. And just having those pitch grades, like it's worth taking a shot on. Just you kind of felt a bit of a like a modernization of the Mets of the Mets strategy and the the, the way they went about the draft process, which I think is very welcome. That was a that was a good way, I think, to kind of put a nice bow on it. Modernized. I think the Mets were a little bit behind. I think everybody would have agreed with that and the old regime and everything that was going on were a little bit behind. They weren't focused on getting ahead, being smarter, using computers, whatever it was. But I mean, like he came in, organization got smarter, got more modern. And I, I'm excited for what the future brings. Big shout out to Billy Epler. Wish the best for him. Just like Steve Cohen and everybody said, oh, James got one more. Hold on. One more. We'd be remiss without talking about the one thing that everyone really hurts Kel Zeppler for, which is the 2022 trade deadline. And this trade deadline was going on as Mark and I were on the train to DC and I made the worst professional decision of my life that day. But there is something like that was a trade deadline with the Mets acquired Daniel Vogel back. And he was the, a point of criticism for a lot of both last year and this year. But I compiled the list of all the hidden position players that were traded at the trade deadline last year. Vogel back, Benintendi, Marsh, Drury, Gallo, Grossman, Pham, Bell, Hosmer, Bell, Soto. <laughs> Daniel Vogel back at best WRC plus. Soto like better the, than Soto. Soto was the best player, of course. But remember, Soto had that really awful, 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 awful stretch. Yeah, gone by hair. Whoa, really? Let me double check it right now just to make sure I have the right dates on here for this fan graph. Okay, page. regardless, he's second. Then he was second. Yeah. Then if it's Soto, thirty percent better than league average in in twenty twenty two after the trade deadline. So it's just a situation yeah. where like I know it didn't look normal, but it was a type of creativity that I think is something that was really, really. A pretty good thing that happened at trade deadline last year, where there was Mets were in a position where they didn't want to trade the big prospects to make the big move. They again, we're not talking about Darren Ruff. That was a miss. We know it was swinging a miss. Yeah, we're not defending that trade at all. So don't don't come at me for that one. But the Mets knew they didn't really have as many. Yeah, one thirty one WRC plus for Soto, one thirty five for Vogelback after the trade wow. in two thousand twenty two. So he was the best bat that was acquired and com- comparatively to league average. So you could there's an argument that they didn't do enough, but every single other position player that was acquired was worse than him. Yeah. That's just kind of funny to put that in perspective as uh, we know, you know, people, like you said, like to get mad about that one. And there's a stat for you to, uh, people are going to get mad that you said that, but that's fine. No, get a little worked up. Yeah. Cause theoretically, yeah, totally. Yeah. I didn't do enough, but there was nothing else to be done. I've been saying that forever. And I wish there was more to be done because I still think about that season, that month all the time, but that's yeah. it. Billy Epler. Thank you. 
Wish the best for you. Move on to now talking about the postseason because there's a lot of good series going on. You mentioned that Phillies-Braves one. Let's talk about that one first. Currently tied 1-1. The time that you guys are listening to this, they will be playing game three out in Philadelphia that night. I mean, this the series looked dead. Looked dead. The Phillies had him by the ropes. And then Zach Wheeler, who has been phenomenal, had one rough inning, but still kept it close. And then uh, the Phillies bullpen, who you were applauding recently to me, kind of just... I mean, Jeff Hoffman got Jeff Hoffman a little bit there. He was he was due to get cold at some point. He made one bad pitch. Yeah, and there's there's like some really funny narratives and context that came out of that game specifically on Monday night where there's been so much discourse this entire postseason about pitchers being left in, pitchers coming out. Jose Barrios, who's been not so good for two straight years, only getting four Terrible. innings. Terrible. Yeah, and then you see a guy like Zach Wheeler who I think retired eight, eight, 18 of the first 19 hitters he faced. He only got, got on reach yeah. by an error. And he was just, they were swinging through everything. He was sitting, he's pumping 97, couldn't touch a thing. The Braves, they literally bring no hit through five innings. And um, the Braves get a solo home run in the sixth, I believe it was. And then Wheeler is still just one run, 85 pitches through six innings. And like, you saw the fastball lose a tick at the end and you saw him leave a few pitches over the middle, but he's your ace. You leave him out there and then, and then everything changes. And then no one really talks about that one when everyone talks about all the other ones. No, I mean, like, I knew that it was the wrong decision to bring him back out when there's this one old guy, I won't mention who he is, that I follow on Twitter. He'll have to guess. if Maybe you know, maybe you're listening. But he tweeted out basically like, Phillies look like they're going to pull out Wheeler here. That's the wrong decision. We'll see how that goes. And I was like, oh, the fact that he wants him in the game, totally the wrong decision. Like, this guy is never right about anything. Um, I also got to take a little bit of blame for that one, too, for the Phillies fans. But honestly, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's elite level, like, content for me. Because after the fifth inning, the Braves have not scored a run in the 14 innings of the postseason. The Braves haven't scored a run in 14 innings. Did I hear that? Surely that can't be true for the best offense. They then went on to score runs in the next two innings and they ended up winning that game, which is just, I mean, incredible level of jinx by me there. Braves fans are getting mad at me and also happy at the same time on Twitter, which is so confusing. They're like, we live rent-free in your head. I'm like, guys, you're not special. They're the only game on TV. Like, this is my job here to talk about baseball. But also, you should be you should be buying me gifts that I tweeted that out because I, I did you guys a favor. Yeah, and there was also um, this great article by Ben Clements today on Fangraphs just about, like, judging when and when not to take a picture out of the game, using Wheeler as kind of like a case study. And a funny tidbit from it, Wheeler threw six middle-middle pitches the entire game. Three of them came in the sixth and seventh innings of that outing. I mean, these are even things that like me and you have talked about like off, off camera where we're like, Wheeler's so great, but there is a clear point, just like with most pitchers, honestly. Everyone. But there's a clear point with Zach Wheeler. You're like, oh, you got to get him out of there. And it felt like at the end of that sixth inning was the time to get him out of there. Yeah, and again, it would have been weird if it happened. And who knows if the Phillies bullpen actually would have held them down with a with a three run lead rather than a one run lead. Like, there's no, there's literally no way to know that. And even that sequencing yeah. that gave the Braves the lead in the Austin Riley home run. Jeff Hoffman had blown Bad. him away with multiple fastballs to get ahead in the count. And then Ronald Acuna on a splitter that bounced. He stole second base because he got on before. I think either I think with a walk. Oh, hit by pitch. Sneaky. Yeah. Ronald Acuna just threw his elbow in front of the pitch. No one, no one talked. Nobody's about talking about that. Yeah. No one's talking about that. But I mean, honestly, it's a good play. Like I'm not gonna chastise him for it. It's I'm good just, ball. Just saying he did it. And that's okay. But he takes second base because he's Ronald Acuna Jr. He sold 75, 73 bases this year. And then a splitter got away from JT Romuto and he got to third base. And the second that happened, my one friend I was watching the game with was like, oh, no more splitters. And I was like, oh, that sounds like a pretty good point. It's probably are no more splitters now that he's on third base. And then Hoffman then goes to the fastball slider, fastball slider. He got the two strikes with the fastball. He missed with a fastball and then missed with a slider and then threw a slider, just totally backed up on him. I thought it was a changeup. I tweeted that was a changeup. Yeah, me too. It looked like a changeup. And 
he's thrown a changeup in the past, but that was just it wasn't even he didn't put a good swing on it, Austin Riley. He just got right out, and that was kind of it. And that's and they even had they probably even had a really good chance to win that game if Michael Harris doesn't make a ridiculous uh, catch jumping into the wall. Yeah, no, that was uh that was a pretty disgusting play and great throw and great play by Austin Riley as well, backing up. Like, what are you even doing there? That, Why are you standing there? That well they Mike Petriello put out uh, and David Adler also did. I don't know one one of them probably took it from the other one. They both work for MLB, so I'm not gonna use the word stole, but they um it looked like Riley was almost actively celebrating and then saw the ball because they had they put like an animation up because they didn't have the actual camera view from that spot, but MLB has yeah. like the uh, I think it's probably Hawkeye or Track Man that tracks everyone's movements on the field. And he looked, he was like skipping and jumping and he put hands up. Like he was like, yes. But then I think the second the cutoff throw came, he started moving towards the middle of the field. Cause he's like, I might as well be here. Why not? I'm playing baseball. And then he just scoops it in one swift motion makes that play. He also, the inning before when the Phillies were threatening men on Austin Riley made two innings before an amazing play, basically going over shoulder in foul territory, yeah, great catch, catch a ball right against the tarp. One of the, Worst things that's happened in baseball in the last couple of years is Austin Riley becoming a, like a legit MVP player who's incredible on both sides of the ball. His like the steps he's taken on defense from 2019 to now are remarkable. And it's a lot of credit to him, a lot of credit to Ron Washington, and just his defense did somehow him and his offense as well, like somehow save this game for the Braves and save their entire season. It's not fair. It's not fair. Uh, all right, gut reaction. Who's winning the series? Braves. Yeah, I got Braves too. I think yeah. that game just, I, th- I don't think that game killed the Phillies. I think it's actually going to go five, which is great for like the chaos scenario because it does look like the Diamondbacks are going to kind of take care of business with the Dodgers. We'll find out on Wednesday night as well if they end up sweeping there. But uh, a five game series isn't the worst thing to happen. No, totally. I think it's also relevant. Especially because Braves fans have been complaining about that big time off. You don't want to get too much time off for these Braves. You know, well, they can't play baseball then. I was about to say that that was. I'd love talking about this because, I mean, they go, why not here? But I think that was one of the absolute worst showings of any fan-based group of beat writers that we've probably ever had like in, in recent years. Just because simply, I don't think they realized that with those extra off days, they lined up for a five-game series that four games started by their best two pitchers, Spencer Strider and Max Fried. Which is like when you see that that is the case and you had you lost a game one, which was Spencer Strider versus Ranger Suarez. How can you not see the massive advantage that you have based on the format of this playoffs. Like, how can you not see that? And with the off day on the Monday in between, that gave them the opportunity to start four of their five best players in a five-game yeah. series. You also have a situation where you got to completely burn through your bullpen the day yesterday. You were able to pull Max Fried early as because he's the one who had a long layoff. He hadn't pitched in over two weeks, but that was because he was dealing with a blister injury. as well. Yeah. yeah, a blister, an injury, whatever. But it was a situation where you're able to go to Kirby Yates and A.J. Minter early in the game and you're not able to worry because they just had an off day. They're going to have one again tomorrow. How about, how about how Charlie Morton's probably going to pitch game three and he would not have been able to pitch if they were playing in the wild card series. He was not ready. So yeah. like, yeah, the complaints about like the days off being too much. It's like, Oh, please get over yourself. Ever the, did the Astros complain about the days off by any chance? It's a team that's been there a few times. It was a one, the world series last year with the extra days off. Yeah. It's just, it was so late. And then now, you don't hear a word about it because they won a game. It's like, oh, God, I was I was really, really hoping that they would lose. One of the few times ever in my life I'd say go Phillies, but I'm still rooting for the Phillies. I want the Phillies to knock them out. I was with some Philly people on uh, Saturday. Shout out friend Emily, her birthday. Her brothers are big Philly people. And um, I was like actively screaming and cheering just for the Phillies. Like I yeah. was in a bar with a couple of Philly people being like, yes, yes, yes. Like actively cheering like, yeah, for the Phillies. I was like, <laughs> I tweeted about it. It's only for this scenario. Yeah, this is the only time it's ever going to happen. Like, literally, if they play any other team in baseball besides Yankees, I no longer care at all. 
But this the is hate it for the Braves is so strong that I'll root for the team that I hate second most or third most, whatever it is. No, for sure. And that that, that that's where it is. Like that's what the playoffs do to you. They gal they galvanize people, and that's what's happened. Yep. Uh so I mean Diamondbacks, Diamondbacks looking great. Yeah, I also want some other Mets fans. Like, let us know. Like either get in the comments, like respond to us on Twitter, YouTube, like tell us who you're rooting for in the series, or even if you even have like to just anything in your heart to bring yourself to watch it. Because it's I think it's a funny conundrum for us Mets fans. Yeah, that got the 2-2-0 series going on right now. Orioles are going to play the Rangers in about an hour from when we're recording this with a game away from being swept in the ALDS. I don't feel great about the Orioles right now. This would be the one I think that they could steal maybe just because it's like, I don't know. Every time that you think like a team's probably just going to run away with it, it feels like that's when the opposing team can just kind of come in and sneak one away. And the Orioles have been swinging the bat better. Like they put up eight runs in the game that they lost or whatever. But, man, that Rangers offense, kind of similar to the to the Diamondbacks. Like, they've just been hot, and the pitching's been good enough. Yeah, and I think another thing that's just important is that when you get into these postseason series, like, sometimes it's, like, really corny, but sometimes being there means a lot. And I don't yeah. think anybody in this Orioles team has even been there. Uh, let's see. Has there been anybody that I can think of that's been in the postseason on this team? Uh, Adam Frazier, maybe, with the Padres? <laughs> Maybe. I mean, but the Mariners technically last year he was there. I guess. Kind of. He didn't win a game, but he was there. O'Hearn yeah, I mean, was not. I mean, Hicks, Hicks, Aaron Hicks. That's the Hicks, one. Aaron Hicks. And, he, and, he had, he's had, and who's playing the best on the whole team is Aaron Hicks, legendary outfielder. Well, right? James McCann, of and course. You look at the Rangers, they've got a lot of playoff experience, despite not being with the Rangers, like Nathan Navaldi, yeah. playoff stud. That guy's an absolute beast in the playoffs. Marcus Simeon has some with the A's. Seager. Corey Seager obviously has some with the Dodgers with how many series that they lose. Um, you go, you go to the outfield, maybe not as much. Evan Carter, what what a beast Evan Carter is. That guy's such a good ball player. Yeah, he's really good. Uh, Jack Flaherty also, again, of course, I don't think you heard me, but James McCann also has postseason experience. Yeah, I I, I heard you. I chose and, to just ignore that one. And Kyle Gibson, my, my guy Kyle Gibson. Yeah, your guy, Kyle Gibson. Oh, God, so boring. Anything else to talk about here with the postseason? I mean, the, the series have been relatively straightforward. It is. I mean, I think it's I think it's used. I mean, the wild card has all happened also since that we spoke. I think I think you got yeah. a lot of predictions right for that. I got a lot of predictions wrong. I don't even remember because I think a lot of my predictions changed between recording the show and then us like talking about it before on your stream. But I think I think I think the big story is the snakes. The Arizona Diamondbacks, yeah. led by the um the absolutely un- unflappable Tommy Pham. They a lot just, of former Mets. All they're doing is just all they're doing is crushing the Dodgers, a team that if any, if anyone has a good head would have liked this playoff format, it would have been the Dodgers because they have no pitchers anyway. So you can line them up however you yeah. want, and it didn't matter at all because Diamondbacks have eight, eight first inning runs in two games already against them. It's there's, there's no tradition quite like the Dodgers just 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 flapping their wings and having nothing <laughs> not flying. And once October hits, and something else funny, this is something I showed told you yesterday. There's a tweet here somewhere. I'm trying to think about like before this yeah. game tomorrow. Dodgers only have like had success in the playoffs after a 60 game regular season, which I think all baseball fans can agree really didn't count because a lot of what no. baseball is the attrition of 162 and then finding your way afterwards. I think it's what technically we've said it before. It's 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 like what 27 27 percent of a championship, 35 percent of a championship, whatever that number I'll, is. I'll run the numbers real quick. 60 divided by 162 yeah. comes out to 37 percent. 37 percent of a regular 37 percent of a regular season. So you get about 37 percent of a ring, which is pretty good. I mean, again, it's more than the Mets have had in the last uh, couple decades. So I, I respect that part of it. But after 60 games of this season, it's kind of hilarious. Diamondbacks and Dodgers were tied atop the AOS. They're both 35 <laughs> and 25. So again, in Dodgers world, this is a really even matchup. Like they should not have been favorites at all. And now it's being proven that way. I mean, tip the cap to us. We both had the Diamondbacks going on to the NLCS. It's not done yet. They yeah. still got to win a game. But uh, Tommy Pham playing well, 
my favorite former Met Paul Seawald shutting the door and, you know, even gangly Miguel Castro getting some big outs for them. I'm the, the snakes are a fun team. If they make it to the NLCS shout out Dalton, your friend, we're going, I'm going to Arizona. Shout out Dalton, shout out Christian who works at the, works at the org, my boy. Yep. And, uh, Astros, they, they, they look back. I don't know. It is, it's, it's a runaway train as they always are. Once right, you get to this time, of right year. where they want you, right where they want you snuck in. And Christian Javier is like, Oh, I remembered how to pitch. And you're like, Oh, so now they have a really good team and uh, it could be a battle of Texas in the American League, which kind of fun, kind of fun, kind of fun. It's good because like I, it's a weird rivalry because it's new because the Astros changing leagues, obviously, but this would do a lot for a uh, Texas rivalry becoming a real thing in baseball. I also think that the newness of it, a lot of it is become from this year where the Astros have this quiet cockiness, but for so much of the season, the Rangers were dominating and they were kind of loud about that they're like the new new kids on the block. And yeah. a lot of that was borne out in the the difference in their celebrations. There was great memes about it where the Rangers were like legit pouring champagne all over each other for just reaching the postseason. And when the Astros clinched, they didn't, when they just clinched the postseason, they the like toast. they did the toast, which I think was really funny. There's a great picture of Verlander. He's just like, yep, here's a little champagne for me. One sip, on to business the next day. And they had the real party when they clinched the division. And then Bregman had a great line that they shouted out today in the broadcast, Pruszynski and Wayno, who... I hate to say it, Mets fans, but Adam Wainwright is, might be a gem in the booth. Like he's done a good job. In terms of pitchers that I've hated watching pitch against the Mets, I, he's by far my favorite announcer so far. By far. <laughs> it's not even close. But um, it was a great line from Bregman where he went up to – I forgot who was doing the the, 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 the Reducci. Work. Was Reducci the guy in the locker room during the celebration? Ooh, That's the thing. It wasn't him. That. Because it was someone that Bregman was like, yeah, I know you guys are talking about like how you think how you think we we're going to do if we we're going to win the division. Sorry, sorry, you couldn't find out. Or no, he said you're never gonna know, or something like that. We're just yeah, like, yeah. Oh, there's some cockiness here. I like this, and no, respect it. Yeah, something else to shout out. Javier, you said a great game today. He had 13 slider sweeper whiffs, as Adam Wainwright very correctly called them on the broadcast on 16 swings. Uh, Jordan Alvarez just went yard again wow, uh, in the postseason in the ninth inning off Bailey Ober, which that is not a good time for the Twins. They're down seven one, going to be down two yeah. one in the series with a chance to be knocked out. On Wednesday night. You don't really like to see that, but 13, 13 uh, slider whiffs, sweeper whiffs on 16 swings. Good for 81%. It yeah, seems like he's back. In the lineup, that was predominantly lefty. You know, Sarah's had a great tweet today that um his uh his release point kind of changed, Javier, and his fastball toward the second half of the year. He got a little bit more extension on it, and that got a lot of his life back that he was missing. And as a predominantly two-pitch pitcher, when one pitch is not working, and it's also he kind of usually just sits 93, 94, 95-ish. Yeah. It's hard when that shape isn't there. It's just going to get hit. That's what happened in the first half. But changing that release point a little bit, that got his life back. And now he's once again amazing. That's really good news for the Astros. Yeah, and speaking of amazing pitchers, you see a guy in Japan, Yoshinobu Yamamoto? I did. I've heard he won the Triple Crown again. Pitching Triple Crown, pretty uh, incredible year. Probably one of the best pitching years in MPB history after doing it for, I think, the last two years as well. Uh, You know, he's a big free agent. That's going to be coming to Major League Baseball this offseason. Mets have been linked to him. Hopefully, we could get him. That'd be great. But we'll see how it goes with Yoshinobu, and just uh, just know that he's he's pretty darn good. Yeah, third consecutive triple crown, twenty five years old. Not bad, not bad. And then the other cool thing that came out of Japan, which last thing we'll talk about here, Rintaro Sasaki. He is like the best high school prospect in Japan. And normally, you just go to the MPB draft, just like you with the major league draft, and you get drafted. You go to your team. He has decided he is not going to go to the MPB. He's going to come to America. Play college baseball. I don't think he's picked a school yet. I think Vandy is the favorite right now. But 
that is so huge. He has the most home runs in high school history in Japan, which did you did you catch the number by any chance, James? How many he hit in high yeah, school? It was like 140 or something, 150. Yeah, 140 home runs as a high schooler. Granted, they play a lot of games there. I mean, like the Koshien tournament that they do in Japan is just out of control. Literally, every team in Japan just plays each other. It's just one massive tournament with one winner at the end, and the pitcher throws like every single day for a month. <laughs> but he's like one of the most interesting Japanese high school prospects that we've seen in a long time, obviously at like Otani and stuff. But the fact that he's made a choice to come to America, play college, not get paid, he can't have NIL either because he's an international player. Mm-hmm. It's a huge deal for uh, MPB baseball. Probably a little bit scary too for them. Something um, interesting about that. Kyler McDaniel from ESPN, formerly Fangraphs, did a great article about this. Nice couple of little blurbs about why this is relevant, why it's interesting, and like kind of how he grades on the scouting scale. But he did say that while he can't do NIL deals in America, he can take a page out of Oscar Shibwe's book, the Kentucky Center from these and UConn from the last couple of years. He can do NIL outside of America still. So it also depends. Oh, that's who cares? It also depends <laughs> on the visa that he eventually signs. If it's an F one student visa, then he cannot have off campus employment unless it's part of his academic program of study, which is interesting. Okay, but Shibwe, I think this year and last year when he played in the Bahamas, he did all his NIL stuff, which is very kind of funny, honestly. But that is kind of funny. Yeah, the cool thing about Sasaki also is that this could. I'm not saying it will, but it'd be really interesting if this did signal a bit of a trend for young Japanese players. I remember years ago, I think it was five-ish years ago when we were seniors. Oh my God, that was more than five years ago. Six years ago. That was ago. way more than five years ago. <laughs> in college, in college, in college. It might oh, have been okay, five, okay. five, six years ago. Um, Darius Basley was the first high school basketball player to take a deal with the uh, G League. And yes. then he did that in, in he did that at the same time. He had a bad deal with New Balance and he was making some money. And that has led to the last few years of guys like Scoot Henderson and I think... Um, couple other guys maybe the thompson twins i mean like, yeah the thompson twins played in the um overtime league i don't remember yeah, yeah. what exactly what it's called but they played in the overtime league uh lamella went to australia yeah, and instead Scoot, of going to college Scoot played in the g league where it was a situation where these players kind of saw that maybe their time wasn't the best spent in the league that you know they were expected to go to and i think there is something about this we've heard shohei otani talk a lot in the past that it's just kind of part of japanese culture where the, the being like being a young star doesn't kind of afford you the same level of opportunities as certain other countries. Now, again, a lot to it, their cultural norms there, where it's a lot about experience, about precision. Like, that's just things that that country, yeah. that culture is based on. So, a guy like Sasaki, who it's also funny, his name is Sasaki, which is the same as Roki Sasaki, the, the best young yeah, pitcher yeah. over there that everyone just got to see in the uh, World Baseball Classic last year, there was 100 miles an hour. But just going to school, again, we don't know where he's going to go. He's rumored Vanderbilt. I'm sure all the big schools are going to give him an offer because he has 70 grade power. He's 250 pounds as an 18 year old, which is <laughs> crazy. But um, just having seen the way that these college hitters have developed, especially in the SEC over the last few years, you probably see a quicker path to Major League Baseball than when if you would have had to play and then post sometime in the 2030s. And I think that is something that should probably get the eye of a lot of the scouting community. And this is super interesting, too, because if you remember in 2018, I think it was the Braves' first-round pick, Carter Stewart, was drafted by the Braves and said, I'm actually going to go play in Japan instead immediately out of high school. Um he hasn't had the greatest of success. I think he had a pretty good year this year in the MPB uh, as a 23-year-old. It was kind of like one of the first. I, actually, this was the first time he got to the like the major league level of the MPB. It had been in the minor leagues, um, but that one kind of backfired. So that's it's interesting. I mean, he's still 23. He could still come over, I'm sure, whenever he wants. But For, for sure. And worst case scenario for Saki, like he's going to get an American education. 
a, yeah. a great American yeah. university. Again, Vanderbilt is the room. And he could right probably now. go play in the MPB if he wants again. Yeah, like, it doesn't work <laughs> out. And uh, MPB, high school baseball in Japan, I don't understand it very well, but to my knowledge, there's probably a little bit less velocity that's coming at these guys. So yeah. it's going to be interesting to see if he does acclimate the SEC pitching right away, like where that, where these 90, like mid 90s fastballs come at him and see how that he adjusts. But I just think in terms of what's going, like where baseball is going, how worldly of a sport it's being, like how many successful players we've seen come over from the MPB the last few years, like this is just. Reduce as simply as possible. It's really, really interesting, and it's going to give him a lot more opportunities for development. Maybe more than he would have had in Japan. Also, huge for college baseball. Huge to have something like this happen. Now that there's going to be like this Japanese theoretical star playing at college baseball in the United States, like you just got a Japanese fan base too now with your team. Something that college baseball hasn't really gotten before. And really interesting to see if he does still take advantage of the NIL, and depending on the visa that he winds up with, depending yeah. on what happens there, because that's something that probably. I'm never going to give the NCAA credit ever for anything, but like this is probably yeah. something that I don't even know if they would have expected being like, because I think everyone focuses so much on college base, basketball, football, and mostly football and basketball secondary, yeah. especially this time of year. But this is a weird, a weird consequence of that. that I think is kind of cool. Yeah, no, definitely. Very cool. We'll keep you guys posted on all stuff all off season. Of course, make sure you are following us on our social media at MetsUp on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Subscribe to the New York Mets YouTube channel to see the video version of this. And if you're listening to us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Odyssey, drop us a rating, drop us a review, download it, and subscribe. Follow James on Twitter at James underscore Shiano. And me at Giraffe Neck Mark with a C. We will catch you guys next week. Again, we're going to be releasing episodes, it seems like, every Wednesday. And if there's anything big that happens, we'll release another one before that. But if not, we'll catch you next week for the next episode of the Messed Up Podcast. Peace out. Peace out. See you guys next time.